Chapter 5 of Dog Watches at Sea This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King Chapter 5 An Easy Packet Captain Spencer of the Brigantine Victoria was the sort of man with whom the children of the street would delight to romp and play and make their friend. Walking aft over the bales of hay which covered the top of the mule pens, I was ushered into his presence by the mate, saying, Here he is, sir. And the kind manner in which he asked, What brought you here, my lad? dispelled all fear of cuffs and oaths, which I had expected to be my reception. I felt the freedom in his presence, and readily told him I was a native of Barbados, and wanting to go home, I had stowed away in the forecastle when the ship was leaving the wharf. I might have kept on talking and relating my troubles to him, so full of tenderness was his face, but seeing the cook walking forward from the cabin to the galley, he hailed him and said, Take this lad along with you and give him some dinner. And going down the steps of the after companionway, he descended to his own meal. I was very hungry. The bit of custard pie was all I had eaten that day. The colored cook was both cook and steward and being in a hurry to get aft again, where he could be on hand if wanted at the cabin table, hastily passed up to me, while I was standing on the mule pen, a black saucepan half filled with mutton stew, a fair-sized chunk of bread, and a large iron spoon which was used for cooking purposes, and told me to sail in. It was then the first week in December. The snow which had fallen the night before lay in undisturbed heaps upon the bales of hay. A keen, piercing northerly wind was penetrating my thread-worn garments. The cook had no sooner gone aft than a voice coming up from the forecastle door beneath my feet shouted, Come down here out of the cold and eat your grub. Holding my saucepan in one hand, the long handle of the spoon extending well over the top of the rim, and the bread in the other hand, I elbowed myself down the pieces of wood nailed to the forward end of the mule pen, safely reached the forecastle door, and entered. This, like the galley door, opened on the after bulkhead of the forward house, facing the main hatch. Usually there would have been an unobstructed view to the cabin door, but on looking aft after entering the forecastle, I could see a line of mules on each side of the ship, reaching from the forward house to the cabin bulkhead. The mule pens were so close to the forecastle that they not only obstructed the light entering the doorway, but gave the forward mule on the port side of the ship an ample opportunity to sniff at the men as they went below. He was a vicious beast, 
but with many slaps on the face as each time he attempted to bite at us during the trip to trinidad he lost considerable of his refractory spirit there was enough daylight for me to dimly see the appearance of the forecastle and the three men who were in it it was a small square room with four bunks the light from a small window on the port bulkhead revealed to me a bench seating myself with my back against the warm partition which separated the galley from the forecastle i made away the contents of the saucepan the sailors were busy unpacking their bags getting their donkeys breakfasts straw beds spread out in their bunks and making their quarters comfortable they had finished their dinner and were smoking their pipes when their attention was drawn to me by the exclamation of the man nearest me he seeing the saucepan empty and the last bit of bread disappearing declared in language of the strongest kind that i had the stomach of a horse at his vehement outcry all attention was concentrated on me for the next few moments i was the object of their jokes they set to to make me believe the strangest and most unheard-of stories of the captain and the ship until the voice of the second mate shouting turn to below there put an end to their fun i noticed as each man started from the forecastle door that the mule was given a slap omitting this i started to follow but when about halfway to the top of the mule pen i felt a tug at my trousers leg i saw the mouth of the mule at my feet and in fear of having his teeth reach my skin i stumbled and fell cutting the back of my head which struck against the iron ring in the forecastle door it was a mere scratch from which the blood flowed freely but sufficient to elicit the sympathy of all they helped me to the top of the pen and there examined the bruise on account of their gathering around me the captain came forward to see what was the trouble this kind good-hearted man invited me into his cabin to dress the cut and coming into such close contact with me there he discovered the state of my clothes and body that vicious mule had not only won for me the sympathy of the crew but also given me an opportunity to be questioned by the captain as to who and what i was i can now see the surprise on his face when in answer to his question if i was related to mr john king of paynes bay i replied that i was his son like many other sea captains he had spent many an hour in my father's company in the masonic lodge and knew him very well oh the joy of that moment when he told me my father was his friend only a few moments and my clothes were folding far astern in the wake of the vessel and i was being put through a thorough process of scrubbing and cleansing after he had administered to me this much-needed bath he entered his room and returned with a bundle of clothes socks and shoes which he had taken from the ship's slop-chest it was not long before i was on deck again 
my shoes many sizes too large, and my clothes having every appearance but that of fitting. At any rate, I was clean and warm, even though I appeared, as the mate remarked, like a scarecrow, fit to be hung in the cornfields to frighten away the crows. I knew every rope on board, and readily discovered that the Victoria had a throat and peak mainsail instead of the mutton-like mainsail and ring-tail gaff topsail of the Excelsior. With this exception, in build and rig, she was exactly like the old Bermudian. It seemed to please the captain when I told him of my observation of the rig of his ship. About four o'clock that afternoon I was told to come below with him. On reaching the cabin he opened a door leading into a room with two bunks, and told me that this was my stateroom. Left alone in the room I tried the bottom bunk. How soft and luxurious! My back had not touched so comfortable a spot for days. I fell asleep and did not waken until the next morning, when the scrubbing of the men overhead, as they washed down the top of the cabin, roused me from my peaceful sleep. I went on deck and watched with exquisite pleasure the bubbling water along the side of the ship and the foaming wake she was leaving behind. The wind was dead aft, which made only the square sails on the foremast of any service in speeding us along. There was not much deck to wash down, only the top of the cabin and forecastle head, which being done, the pumps were manned. There were only three men on deck, the mate and two sailors, which was the whole of the port watch. One of the sailors was at the wheel, the other sailor and mate were jerking up and down, clankety-bang, the one-arm handle of the pump. It was a mean, clumsy contrivance at best, but more so at this time, for it was buried beneath the mule pen close abaft the mainmast. I could see the back of their heads as they bobbed up and down at each bang of the pump handle, spell-o, and another try for a suck. I squeezed myself down on the ship's deck where I could get a hand on the handle, and then I exercised myself enough to win a pleasant, that's the boy, from the mate. The captain had just come on deck, and calling me to him, he gave me a pair of trousers which he had worked on himself during the night, telling me I would find them short enough to move around in. I then learned from him that, against his wish, I must work during the trip as it would displease the owners to know he had made a passenger of a stowaway. I wanted to be of service, and asked to be allowed to work on deck and not in the cabin with the cook. Accordingly, I was detailed to wash the mules' faces and be around the deck, all day on and all night in. Every morning I was called at half-past five to begin the day with pail and rag, going from mule to mule, washing the faces of all, and sponging their eyes, while the mate or second mate, whosoever watch it might be, with the sailor of the watch, would follow with water and hay. This was my morning's duty while the mules were on board. I would finish cleaning their faces by breakfast time, and the rest of the day would at times take a trick at the wheel, hold a turn of a rope, and lend a hand cleaning paintwork, 
doing whatever a boy of my size could around the deck. I then learned a deck load of mules is not a very desirable freight on a small vessel in a heavy sea. On the third morning out we were in the Gulf Stream. The fair northwest wind was increasing in force, and by dinner time it was blowing a gale. Running before a large swell and burying her rail at each roll on a line with the sea, our brig would at times receive the top of a following wave, which made it very risky as well as uncomfortable for the mules. If our decks had been clear, we could safely have run with the gale. After the watch had gone below and had eaten their dinner, all hands were called to heave her to. The foresail was clewed up and furled, the mainsail close-reefed and set, and the foretopmast staysail flattened aft. The helm put down gently, main sheet and lee braces manned, our brig pointed her nose to the wind and laid to like a duck. About seven o'clock that evening, a noise as though the heavens were falling made our ship tremble from head to stern. It seemed as though we were a toy in the hands of a giant. Standing by the side of the man at the wheel, I heard the shout, Four topmast staysail carried away, sir. The odd man, title of all captains by virtue of their office, and not because of their age, came rushing on deck, shouting, Call the watch! Following the mate forward to the forecastle head, I could see the dark sail against the darkened sky, slatting and banging like some wild monster that had been just set free. The sailors were hee-hawing and pulling at the downhaul, trying to haul down to the boom the struggling, resisting sail. The whip which had been roved through a block in the pennant, the whole forming a sheet for the sail, had parted. The slatting of the sail, after it had been hauled down to the boom, had twisted the pennant round and round the bobstay. Bellying out like a balloon, it was impossible to get the sail secured. I was standing with the mate, both of us holding on to the capstan on the forecastle head, watching the men on the boom doing their best to smother the sail. Being of no service, and realizing that I would be safer aft than on the forecastle head, I started to grope my way aft. Just then she buried her bow under. I felt myself scraping along the forecastle head, and like falling in the descent of a waterfall, I was washed under the feet of the mules. Pulling myself out without a scratch, I met the mate going aft, shouting, The boy is overboard! How those five men held on to the bowsprit that night has ever been a mystery to me. The mate had a good grip on the capstan, which saved him from being washed along with me. Soaking wet, I went below and missed the seamanship of that night. Next morning, I got into my half-dried clothes, which had been hanging by the cabin stove, and went on deck to begin my work as nursemaid for mules. The gale had moderated, and we were again running before a good-sized sea, making good weather of it. One of the mules had died during the night, 
so after breakfast a few of the planks were taken up from over his stall and the dead carcass was hoisted up through the open space and with a lee roll of the ship his body was let go and went splashing into the sea a feast for sharks during the forenoon watch i learned from bob one of the sailors how the fore-topmast staysail was secured the brig was put before the wind so that the clue of the sail could be reached the foul pennant unhooked and the weather pennant and whip hauled over the stay and used as a lee sheet while this was being done the brig was making better weather running than she had been at noon when first hove to which made the old man decide to continue on his course going forward and looking over the bow i could see the fouled pennant of the staysail dragging from the bobstays the moderating gale carried us quickly across the gulf stream and on the fifth morning peacoats mittens and mufflers were left below being no longer needed in the warm southern latitude for three days we sailed through masses of gulf weed during my meal hours and in the evening after the day's work was over i would take my seat on the jib boom end and watch our brig cut her way through the beds of green stuff the whole ocean resembled a cornfield the blue water of the ocean could only occasionally be seen we picked up a strong trade wind which carried us well into the tropics and then died out to a calm on the eighteenth day out we made the land of trinidad and that night dropped anchor in the peaceful waters of port of spain harbor next morning after a good night's rest all hands were called coffee was served and the word turn to came from the second mate a purchase was rigged for getting the mules over the side into the empty lighters which were to carry them to the shore a canvas apron was passed under each mule a pull on the fall and he was in mid-air kicking all four heels until landed in the lighter this was the work of only a few hours that night christmas eve we weighed our mud hook and sailed for barbados although it is only a day's run from barbados to trinidad it took us until the night of the twenty eighth before we dropped anchor in bridgetown harbor it is a dead beat to windward against the northeast trades we sailed full and by the wind making st vincent and st lucia on our weather bow then using the trades as a leading wind past martinique and st lucia heading straight for barbados and dropped our anchor in carlisle bay how happy i felt as i looked once more on my native hills on the windmills on the sugar plantations their four large points revolving around and around grinding the juice from the cane on the boats sailing into the wharf with their freight of flying fish and on the white sandy beach along the shore the joy made me restless the captain had gone on shore and had told me to remain on board until he returned i could not so anxious was i to reach my home i hailed a flying fish boat to take me on shore and bargained with its captain to give him for his trouble my thirty cents the remnant of my good angel's gift 
shouting good-bye to the mate and to all on board and promising to be back the next day i got into the flying fish boat and in a little while i was standing once more on my native soil after an absence of twenty-two months once landed i kept along the western side of the town doing my best to shield myself from the eyes of the people i felt the shame to be seen in the clothes which had seen much service and were hanging so loosely upon me the peaked cap which the mate had given me the first day out from new york was pulled well over my eyes so shunning everybody i reached the sand beach outside the town when within a mile from home i was forced to leave the beach and take the highway as the rocks along the shore extended to the water's edge before i could pass this stretch of rocks and reach the beach again a negro from payne's bay driving home in his donkey cart recognized me whipping his donkey he hurried along to carry the news of my coming to my mother at last the old house hove in sight i reached the street walked quickly up the gap and was once more in the fond embrace of my loving mother and father and in the company of the dear ones at home that evening until bedtime the friendly natives from all parts of the village called to shake hands and welcome me home from the time i saw the atlantic towing down the east river until i arrived at home it never occurred to me that my clothes chest would be sent home to my parents within the past four years to this time my mother had received word of the death of two of her foster children whom she loved as her own these two brothers of mine were sailors one had died at sea his body committed to the deep the other had passed away in a hospital in savannah georgia and was buried on a foreign shore within a few weeks of my arrival she had also received the sad news that her firstborn had been washed off the flying jib-boom of the schooner Ella Francis while on a passage from Jacksonville to New York. She was just recovering from this severe blow of the loss of my brother when Captain Lanfair of the Atlantic called, bringing my clothes with him. He told her of my putting my clothes aboard his ship and that no one on board could tell what had become of me after the tow-boat had left his vessel he thought of me and the ship was searched from stem to stern trying to find me the only hope he could hold out to her was that i might have gone ashore again unobserved by anyone and missed the ship when the negro brought word that i was coming down the road she left her bed forgetful of her neuralgia and with the rest of the family at home watched eagerly for my appearance it was some minutes before it dawned upon me what her tears of joy meant everybody thought i was at the bottom of the sea excepting my mother who through those three weeks of suspense hoped that i might yet be alive and be spared to her i soon got into a suit of my own clothes which had been aired and put away once more in a rig that fitted me breathing the hallowed atmosphere of home life i related my experience to my mother 
keeping from her and all the family the bitter experiences of my stay in New York City, which they never knew. Next morning I kept my word and was again on board the Victoria. Captain Spencer seemed annoyed with me for leaving the ship before he had returned aboard. The day we arrived, as soon as he had entered his vessel in the custom house, he went in to da costa's clothing store and purchased a suit of boys clothes for me and on arriving aboard found that i had left i gave him a letter from my mother inviting him to take dinner with our family on sunday which he accepted and in a few moments we were good friends again i wanted my mother to meet the sailors of the victoria and therefore induced captain spencer to have them row him down to our house in his ship's boat, a distance of five miles. When Sunday comes after a week of toil, sailors expect to be given that day for rest. So when Captain Spencer said his men would growl if he had them row him that distance on Sunday, I readily told him I had talked it over with Bob and the rest, and they wanted to do it. Before seeing the captain when I got aboard that morning, I had told these kind men my mother wanted them to come and put my plans of rowing the captain before them. Sunday noon, Captain Spencer, rowed by his four seamen, made a landing on the beach at our back door. What an afternoon of pleasure for me. I can now call to my mind the picture of this good captain walking between my mother and father, the four sailors, with my sisters and myself, following close behind them on our way to evening service in the old parish church. Late that night they bade us good-bye, and loosing their boat from the beach, they rowed back to their ship. At this time of my life my father was well on in age, entering his seventy-fourth year. His eyesight was rapidly failing, which forced him to resign his position. What money he possessed had been lost by trusting too much to others, and it meant a struggle to meet the home necessities and maintain his dignity on the pension he received from the government for his faithful services. I remained at home restless, not wanting to go to school, and too young to be of any real use in the business life of Barbados. So with the feeling that I could earn some money and send it home if I were at sea, I expressed a desire to travel again. One afternoon, eight weeks after I had reached home, Captain Darrell, of the schooner Maggie, drove up to the door and spent the evening with us. He had arrived from Bermuda and had called to see us. That night I secured from him the promise of a passage on his ship to Bermuda. My mother was grieved, but her grief was mitigated by the thought that as I had pulled through for nearly two years without any accident befalling me, I would now, that I was a little older, get along safely. Had she known of my experience and of the habits I had acquired during my stay from her, I should not have gained her consent to leave again. She, like many other good mothers, had not the faintest idea of what a sailor's life is, or what the temptations are that are placed in his way in the seaports of the world. On March 3, 1882, not then fifteen years old, I again said the good-bye, and with my chest well packed with clothes, 
joined the Maggie as a passenger, sailing away to visit my old friends in Bermuda. It was late in the evening when the schooner got under way. Captain Darrell kept close to the shore, and about seven o'clock, to my surprise, he brought his vessel to, right opposite our old home, and dropped anchor about a stone's throw from the beach. Then lowering the boat, he, with his mate, Mr. Johnny Hill, who was a nephew of Captain George Hill, and myself, pulled for the shore, leaving the ship in charge of the cook and sailors. It was an evening that will ever be fresh in my memory. It was the last one I spent with my mother. What thoughts of danger, of storm, and of sickness will enter one's mind when we have to say good-bye to dear ones who are leaving us to cross the sea? Though steam has lessened much of that fear and dread, we still have to put forth every effort to dispel the gloom by making ourselves believe all will go well. I had said good-bye in the morning, and now, as the early morning hour of another day was dawning, I was saying good-bye again. It was close to midnight. The stars were shining brightly overhead. The whole family were standing on the beach, the boat rocking in the easy surf and wash of the waves. We could see the black hull of the schooner riding at anchor. My mother held in her hand a large, old-fashioned candlestick, and the light of the candle cast its rays upon her face. Can a boy forget his mother's face? No, never. All through life that face has lived in my memory. I will confess that in days gone by, when indulging in almost every kind of sin, whenever she would enter my mind, a desire to be better came also, and I must say that it was an effort to think of other things and to drive all such noble longings from my heart and mind. Her presence always with me, mingled with the thoughts of home, gained the victory as I launched into manhood, creating in me a desire to live as she would have had me live. That night, filled with grief because of my departure, she kissed me her last goodbye. Bermuda has for many years been a strong naval station in Great Britain's western possessions. There was always at least a regiment of soldiers there, sometimes two regiments, stationed on the different parts of the island. The North Atlantic fleet spends considerable time each year at the government dockyard. These soldiers and sailors are socially ostracized by the inhabitants of the island. While the white native Bermudians will work by the side of their fellow colored countrymen, they still maintain a certain social distinction. But all classes, both white and black, regard the English soldier and man-of-war's man as a loathsome object whose company is undesirable. It may have been the conduct of these men that gave rise to this feeling. However, it was so. No respectable man will invite an English soldier to his home. The social law of the island forbids it. 
After I had arrived at Bermuda, I wanted to be at work where I could earn some money instead of wasting my time at Captain Hill's home. The onion season was over, and there was no freight for ships. I visited the dockyard one day, and there heard that an engineer's mess servant was wanted. I applied for the position, passed the doctor's examination in the sick bay of the guard ship Irresistible, and donned the uniform of a mess steward of Her Majesty's Navy for a service of five years. I wrote to Captain Hill, telling him of my enlistment. He did not reply, and when I called to see him, I noticed that he was displeased. I learned from him that as a servant in the Navy, I had cut myself off from my friends at Port Royal Parish. To do an honest day's work in the field or shop, or to be a sailor on a merchantman, or any employment in civil life, was considered respectable, but an enlistment in the Army or Navy was degrading. I lived through six months of flunkyism on the irresistible, and then, to please my old friend, I asked for my discharge, which was granted me as soon as I found a boy to take my place. Arrangements were then made with Mr. Thomas Greer, a blacksmith in Hamilton, to teach me his trade. I remained with him long enough to learn how to pump the bellows and remove an old shoe from a horse. At that point I was sent on board the bark Ruby, of Shoreham, England, with some ironwork which had been made for her. The Ruby had brought a cargo of coal from Cardiff, and was taking on ballast for Haiti, where she was chartered to load logwood for Antwerp. During that visit with the ironwork, I met the captain, and arranged to sail with him as deck-boy for the glorious sum of one pound and ten shillings a month. Captain Hill did his best to induce me to remain. I can now see him parading the floor of his dining-room, and can hear his voice bewailing my foolishness. What will your mother say, of all places for you to go, a pest-hole of yellow fever and smallpox? I don't mind that, I replied. Saying my last good-bye to this dear old friend, who since then has rounded his old ship into the landlocked harbor of rest, I made my way on board the Ruby. I was a boy not sixteen years old when, for the first time, I was to sail among strangers to begin on my own resources the life of a sailor. End of chapter 5